Welcome to Insights and Strategies with Barbara Lang. On the program today, Barbara and her guests will discuss the topics you want to hear more about, from business leadership to community and education. It all affects our bottom line. Now, here is your host, Barbara Lang. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Insights and Strategies, where we will bring you thoughtful and provoking insight on a variety of business issues that impact you and your organization on a daily basis. I am pleased to be your host, Barbara Lang, Managing Principal and CEO of Lang Strategies, LLC. We'll be tweeting during the show, so please join the conversation at Lang Strategies. In between our shows, you can also reach me at bblang at langstrategies.com, and you can learn more about us at www.langstrategies.com. Last week, we had an enlightening discussion on international business development, and of course, some of the challenges that a global economy has brought us is more risk with our use of technology. Everything we do, not just in our personal lives, but more and more in business, we do via technology. In order to do business more effectively, less costly, and to be more competitive or to just stay competitive, We must all be connected, whether it is our bank accounts, our medical records, or credit card purchases. Small businesses are even more vulnerable. They are just not always as prepared as larger businesses because of the lack of investment in infrastructure. Experts put the cost of a single breach for a small business to be approximately $38,000. And for a larger business, a whopping $550,000. The risk associated with all this are certainly financial risk, compliance risk, operational risk, and reputational risk. We want to explore some of those risks today and how to mitigate uh, some of this and continue to make our business grow and develop. So joining us today are people that know just a little bit about this subject. We're pleased to have Jim Deniger, the President and CEO of the Greater Washington Board of Trade, Antoine Ford, President and CEO of Enlightened Incorporated, a, a technology firm based here in Washington, D.C., Jeffrey Zippo, partner at Bloom Shapiro, and his specialty is cybersecurity issues. And I think Stephanie Real is now on the line. Uh, she's CEO and uh, Vice Provost for Technology at John Hopkins University and John Hopkins Medicine. Good morning, all. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Delighted to have you today. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Good morning. Morning. Good morning, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you. So is Stephanie on yet? Has she joined us? Not yet. Okay. So, Jim, I'm going to start with you. You're my former partner in crime in this city. Um, the Board of Trade has, for several years, had the threat of cybersecurity as one of its main agenda items. What has been the main themes that you have covered with your members 
and are, are you sounding the, uh, the, the alert for everybody? Well, it's interesting, Barbara. There are three aspects to cybersecurity associated with the greater Washington region. One is that how it affects business all across the country, and we're not immune to it. So in this region, just like plenty of others, there's uh, phishing, and certainly there's a lot of scams. We're looking at ransomware. There are challenges associated with uh, individuals getting emails saying, hey, transfer $50,000 to this account um, all of those types of things happen on a regular basis. The dynamic of the greater Washington region, though, is that when you look at infrastructure, when you look at the utilities, when you look at health care and the places that are under attack, or Office of Personnel Management, uh, you know, we, we power the White House. We power the federal agencies when you're looking at the power companies here. So things are different. And so that's the second aspect that really is different here than other parts of the country. The third, and maybe the area that the Greater Washington Board of Trade gets involved in the most, is that this region, Northern Virginia, suburban Maryland, and the District of Columbia, has an outsized opportunity associated with cybersecurity to grow this as an industry base. You know, we're home to NSA and Cyber Command, FBI, CIA, Pentagon, all of the major contractors that work in this space. And so while Silicon Valley or New York or Boston certainly have a lot of technological capabilities, no one protects the national infrastructure. No one protects the national economy or the national interests anywhere close to the way we do it in greater Washington. So it's a, a competitive advantage that we have an opportunity to make more about. Is there any particular industry from your perspective that's more vulnerable than another retail or banks and financials or healthcare? Any of the major industries that uh, come out of this region um, will well, could have more of a challenge. It, it is a it's a constant constant threat. The universities get hit on a regular basis, and they have records, but they also have beyond records. They have finances at stake. The healthcare system not only has records, but they have systems at stake. I think that there are, um, I, I think the vulnerabilities are unfortunately about the same across the country, but when we look at the risks associated with what happens if you take down a power company and the implications for Greater Washington with our metro system, with the federal agencies, with the different um, businesses that are here, that gets to be top of mind. I'd also say as it relates to the different businesses, so many associations are here. And so when you look at their records and membership records, when you look at their finances, um, it, we have some different industries here, but it's this attack on the records that is at big risk and then this ransomware where the systems get shut down in exchange for being paid by Bitcoin to be shipped overseas uh, before I turn your system back on. That's a that's a new one. So infrastructure threats that you can get to through some of the companies, but then also the actual systems of the companies and organizations off of things like ransomware. Ah, very, very interesting. Jeffrey, um, is this topic part of the changing landscape of technology and the associated risk from all the folks that you represent and your uh, research and knowledge on the topic? Well, I think what we're seeing is the threats are getting worse and worse. Um, we've, we've mentioned ransomware a, a couple of times already, and there's a new ransomware threat um, that 
actually is it's called a ransomware threat worm that you know it it now is going and spreading PC to PC and encrypting information and destroying information essentially. So we're I I view it as a pandemic, um, and we're all exposed to the pandemic, and it's becoming a bigger and broader issue for all industries um, across the United States and, and overseas as well. Um, everyone's being attacked. Um, no one's being left out of this party. Um, so it's an equal opportunity uh, situation. goes across all industries, all people, everything. Exactly. Um, you know, Antoine, let me bring you into um, uh, the conversation. Uh, you are the CEO of a small uh, technology firm based here in Washington, and you've been here for, I think, over 20 years. I know that you do a lot of federal contracting as well, and I assume that that has changed a lot over the years. You know, kind of tell us what, what the changes that you have seen and what you're having to do yourself to, 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 to protect your clients. Well, that's a great, great question. I mean, I think... In all the with the with the with the increase in in cyber issues and integration and the Internet of Things, we've seen where there's been a essentially a coalescence of uh, competition. Where before you'd have your Fortune 100 companies uh, in the technology now going after smaller opportunity because with sequestration uh, occurring and a smaller government spend, you now have smaller businesses and larger businesses going after the same dollars, and so. Competition has become extremely high. You had the dreaded low-price, technically acceptable concept where now the government's saying, listen, I'm going to get the best price for what we need, even though technology has become a little more uh, difficult. So it's, 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 it's a difficult sort of concept to go with. Uh, and then you have what I interesting enough with the millennials coming together and forming companies. Now you have a little bit more innovative coming from less mature companies, but they're, they're more creative. And so that market has made the competition a little higher, the dollars a little less. Yet we are, as government contractors, uh, at, uh, have to work a lot harder to protect the government's asset because particularly we're talking about foreign threats when it comes to at State Department where we do work there and some other agencies where some of the foreign governments have literally been in the networks for months at OPM. They were there for a while. And so, you know, as, as they said earlier, you know, getting the records and getting access to people's information has caused uh, more competition in the industry and they want businesses to react faster and more accurately than ever before. And probably less expensive as well, right? Yeah, yeah, because at the end of the day, you know, that low cost technically acceptable has driven prices down. And and so it's a it's a correction of the market. Um even in the intelligence community where people used to have they used to be have higher salaries, now they're having to take a little less pay because the intelligence community has to do more overseas and internally to protect the assets of the country. So if you look at um as you're trying to to cost out something and a proposal for uh, for a client, primarily uh, of the federal government, uh, how do you handle the higher cost? Because my assumption, or maybe I asked the question a different way, is the driving down the cost help to cause this problem where people may not be as prepared? 
I, well, that's that's an awesome question because you, you would think so, and I think it does have something to 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 do with it because at the end of the day, you're asking people to do more with less, and so people react faster, and so you know you have people now not being as prepared, not being as diligent because they have to do more, so they're a little bit more focused on certain duties and not being as conscientious about you know, the access that allows people to do that. So, you know, what people have done, what, what Enlighten has done, is that we've partnered a lot more with companies traditionally that we had not. I mean, we're, you know, now you're seeing a lot of more JVs, joint ventures, and you're seeing a lot of partnerships between hardware-based company, companies and, and software-based companies where, you know, we're able to leverage a hardware solution in our software solutions and therefore driving costs down where before the government would go to two vendors, now they want to go to, let's go to one and get the total solution. So you gotta be able, we've been able to do that to be a little bit more creative about offering solutions, particularly on the federal side. So as you're talking to a client, what, are you, what advice, is there one or two words of advice that you will tell them uh, as you try to build that wall of defense? Uh, it's a great question. I think, and it's, and it's very subtle, we tell people you need to recognize behaviors, uh, and very small behaviors. Um, a lot of times people, if you're looking at your computer, you know, something, something unusual will happen, and people, you know, don't pay attention to it, and they'll say, okay, it was a glitch. Often, if it's unusual behavior and patterns in what you're doing, that's an indication that something's changed. Um, and people often ignore those things. Um, we we tell people, listen, you know, you're not going to allow certain activities on your network anymore. So people aren't going to be able to surf as much on your web. You are going to have to block certain social media, which is a very interesting thing with the increase in millennials. But if you're in a very secure network, those things that NSA and some of the other firms uh, aren't uh, allowed, yet they're struggling with this new generation and this concept called bring your own device, where you bring your own device to do work. And it's brought a very interesting concept where if I bring my own iPad to work and that iPad gets compromised because I'm working right. on it, who, who owns the device? Right. And so we're, we're really telling people to look at not only um, technical behavior but personnel behavior. If you see something that's out of, uh, out of, out of pattern, you need to say something about it. Interesting. We are going to continue this fascinating um, uh, conversation on cybersecurity, securing your business in an insecure world. Stay with us. We're going to take a break right now. Stay with us, and we'll be back on the other side. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Blend Strategies is the leader in providing businesses and nonprofits with insight on business development, operational excellence, political strategy, tactical planning, marketing communications, leadership management, and cultural transition services for international businesses. Each member of our team is an expert in their respective field, and each of them are dedicated to serving in the best interests of our diverse client base. Our business is to define our clients' needs and create a customized plan to exceed their goals and objectives. 
We compete aggressively and successfully for our clients' respect and trust. We also care deeply about the communities we serve, and our expertise in civic and grassroots campaigns serves our clients well on a variety of issues. We appreciate the faith, support, dedication, and investment of our clients and community in Lang Strategies, and we look forward to a successful and sustainable partnership. For more information or to put Lang Strategies to work for your organization, visit us on the web at langstrategies.com. That's langstrategies.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Insights and Strategies. To reach Barbara Lang or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to bboyer at langstrategies.com if you have any questions or comments about the program. Now, back to Insights and Strategies. Well, welcome back. I'm glad you stayed with us for the next segment. We still have so much to, to cover uh, and with this conversation with our guests, Jim Deniger, Jeffrey Ziplo, and Antoine Ford. Uh, so, Jeffrey, I, I think I'll start this segment with you a little bit. Uh, can you, in your experience, can you really prevent a breach? And, and what do we have to do to get there? Um, I don't believe there's uh, a, a pure prevention capability. I think what we can do is mitigate risk to the best to our ability. Um, I think Antoine was heading down a path, which I would agree with him on, which is, you know, we, we need to start with people. People are part of the problem, and we need to educate people on, you know, what to be aware of, what to look out for, things to, you know, click on, not click on, emails to open or not open and be more diligent in how they handle security, not just for themselves, but for the entire organization. So I assume all, go ahead. Yeah. No, I I was also going to add that, um, you know, there are tips and tricks that, um, you know, we can do again to mitigate risk, this whole area of patch management, making sure systems are, are up to date on patches, um, ensuring that our virus protections and malware detection devices are up-to-date. Um, and you believe it or not, many um, organizations, even smaller organizations in particular, have a tendency to either let things lapse or don't have the resources to stay on top of things in order to ensure they're mitigating risk as, as much as possible. Hey, Barbara, um, can I jump in there for a second? Sure. Absolutely, Jim. Well, and adding to that, we're hearing more and more about pirated software where smaller companies, typically smaller companies, have had pirated software. You know, think, think Outlook or Microsoft Word, and the patches that have been provided by the companies don't apply to those pirated softwares. So if mm-hmm. you tried to beat the system in the past, it's working against you now. Those systems are even more vulnerable. You guys are really scaring me today. Uh, <laughs> when when you uh, you look at the enormous cost of protecting uh, your infrastructure, uh, shoring it up, doing all the things, 
um, you need to do to prevent an attack or to mitigate your risk from an attack. Is it worth the investment, Jeffrey? And we'll start with you. I'm sure all of you may have an opinion on this, or maybe you're in total agreement. But uh, is it, why don't we start with you? Is it worth the investment? You have to invest. You have to keep up, um, or else you're going to expose your key information, customer information, potential credit card and financial information, um, you know, out on the Internet. Um, Or you'll be, you know, be in a situation where your information is being held ransom. Or if you are some type of manufacturer, you might have uh, some type of IP that, that you need to protect. So... You know, all of those are, are really important. One of the other pieces is to really understand what kind of information um, you, you have that other people might want. Um, recently, I was talking with a client who, you know, shouldn't be holding on to other people's credit card information. And when they did uh, an internal analysis, they realized they had um, probably close to um, 5,000, 10,000 credit cards that they really didn't know that they had. And so the reality is we need to be really vigilant, and we have to, you know, unfortunately spend uh, dollars plus um, resources, people resources, to to really um, tighten down and batten the hatches so that we can protect ourselves as best as possible. So, Jeffrey, is that like, um, you know, I'm a frequent uh, order of goods online because it's easier to shop, right? And right. Um, and so when I go to my favorite vendor, the credit card from previous times is already loaded there, so I don't have to do that again. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Well, I'm talking about that, but I'm also taking or or think having people think about what are they holding on to? Those small businesses, those. Um, mid to large businesses that are holding on to information and, and exactly what information they have. Um, I'm going to use a term called encryption. Encryption is your friend. And ensuring or, or encrypting information that um, people want will help protect and mitigate risk. Because if, the, if we have critical information that's encrypted, um, even if the bad guys get that information, it's of no use or value to them. Interesting. Okay. In the past, you have talked about um, cyber attacks, certainly in the corporate world, but you also do a lot around municipal governments. Talk a little bit about that work and the vulnerability in a school system or, or a county or city government. And, and are these... Um, Entities as much at risk as um, uh, for of a breach as a corporation may be. I would venture to say that they're at a higher risk. Um, I think for a couple reasons. One, um, a lot of municipalities, school districts, uh, even not for profit, um, don't always have the dollar resources to to keep up. Um, you know, I've been in organizations recently that still have. Um, Microsoft XP. XP was um, Microsoft um, basically said in, in April of 2014 that we're not we're no longer providing any type of patches, security patches, or updates to the software product. Um, 
Windows Server 2003 was also decommissioned in the July of 2015, but a lot of these other organizations still have those types of, you know, older systems in place that they're trying to support, but yet they're susceptible and have a higher risk, if you will, to a lot of these vulnerabilities that are out there. Um, and that's and, and I, that's because they have not migrated to the higher level correct, of software, correct. right? Okay. And and in some instances, they have systems that are older that can't be migrated to to some of the newer systems. Um, I would also, you know, take a, a, another leap of uh, another step in that um, a lot of these organizations really don't know the type of information that they have. Uh, for example, municipalities, you know. They, they store a lot of public information. That is true. But many many municipalities also store health-related information on residents within, um, within their population. And that is, you know, obviously very coveted information. It needs to be protected. Uh, HIPAA, you know, certainly covers all of that. The municipalities don't fully appreciate all the time how to mitigate those risks and to, you know, store this, that data safely. One of the, this is Anton. I'm going to jump in really quickly. One of the things sure. to, to, to his point is many of the municipalities don't also have the standards that the federal government has mandated to adhere to. So, you know, there's standards that NIST has that for cybersecurity and FISMA. Well, the states in many cases in the cities have a lower standard, and they don't have to adapt to those. And so... Um, that has left them, in some case, very vulnerable because they don't have to do the assessments uh, that is mandated by on federal by law. And so, because of that, you know, as he talked about, some of the old infrastructure is open. And the interesting thing is, if you're going to do a cyber attack, I'm going to go to the lowest common denominator, and then you know, go, snake my way through who I want to get to. You know, it would just seem like it would be some common sense to try to adopt the federal guidelines. Yeah, um, but there's a, there's a cost to it, as we talked about, because right. adopting that standard says that I must now go back and assess my entire infrastructure uh, that, it, that I have for a municipality. And although it is worth it, because as we talked about, you know, finding out the vulnerability later, you're going to pay the money. So our advice is usually, you know, let's do a, just a baseline assessment of where you are, and at least we can give you a remediation plan. Yeah, but until it's mandated, it'll never come to be. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially, most states within you know the U.S. and that includes District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and Virgin Islands, I believe, you know, have some form of data protection standards, breach notification laws. They're all different. They they vary significantly. Um, Massachusetts has a, a fairly strong standard. There are other states that are far less. And, you know, until something is mandated at the federal level, level, you know, each state is going to be doing things a little bit differently, and that allows businesses to do things differently. That allows municipalities and school districts to do things differently as well. Mm-hmm. So, Jeffrey and, and, and Antoine, since you actually have clients, as you um, go down this pathway with your clients... What are the biggest challenges that you face in trying to get your client or help your client protect their assets? 
Um, well, this is Angela, I'll start, I'll start first. One of the things, interestingly enough, is cybersecurity is never looked as required until a breach has happened. So it's almost like people don't put an alarm system on their house until somebody's broken into the neighborhood okay. or their house. Sure, sure. And so people say, cyber, it's an additional cost. I don't need it. Uh, I don't want to focus on my development. I'll put it in afterwards. And it never happens until there's a break-in. And that's really the hardest part where we're saying, well, you know, let's at least do the assessment. Well, we'll wait. And it, it, until they hear about something, and uh, unfortunately, the OPM breach really sensitized people to it because you had, I guess, 21 million people records, uh, anybody who has right. a clearance, uh, violate And that really started to sensitize other agencies. Right, right. Fascinating. Um, we're going to take another break uh, right now. Uh, please stay with us to our listening audience as we continue this discussion on cybersecurity, securing your business in an insecure world. it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Lang Strategies is the leader in providing businesses and nonprofits with insight on business development, operational excellence, political strategy, tactical planning, marketing communications, leadership management, and cultural transition services for international businesses. Each member of our team is an expert in their respective field, and each of them are dedicated to serving in the best interests of our diverse client base. Our business is to define our clients' needs and create a customized plan to exceed their goals and objectives. We compete aggressively and successfully for our clients' respect and trust. We also care deeply about the communities we serve, and our expertise in civic and grassroots campaigns serves our clients well on a variety of issues. We appreciate the faith, support, dedication, and investment of our clients and community in Lang Strategies, and we look forward to a successful and sustainable partnership. For more information or to put Lang Strategies to work for your organization, visit us on the web at langstrategies.com. That's langstrategies.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Insights and Strategies. To reach Barbara Lang or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to bboyer at langstrategies.com if you have any questions or comments about the program. Now, back to Insights and Strategies. Well, welcome back. Glad you stayed with us for this next segment. We still have so much to cover, and I'm feeling that we're not going to get it all in in this hour. Uh, let's continue uh, the conversation. And, you know, there's been uh, a lot of um, 
uh, talk in the news uh, lately. There have been several breaches in medical facilities around the country. And I guess maybe I throw it out to all of you and maybe you start Jeffrey, since I think you've got a client in this space, but Jim, what you know, and Antoine as well, kind of what's vulnerable and what what is the downside of having a breach in a medical facility? What what's um, what's happening here, and should we all feel scared to death? Uh, so why don't we start with you, Jeffrey? Well, I think we all need to be concerned. Let, let me start out by saying that because there is no standard practice within the various medical um, institutions that are out there. And everyone, you know, recognizes and understands, you know, the HIPAA rules and regulations, HIPAA high-tech, but they all interpret it a little bit differently. Um, and they also um, tend to have different standards that, that they've put into practice. I think that, you know, when you look at um, the whole concept and, and area of mobile device, mobile technologies, and, and you think of healthcare, that certainly is something that probably brings a little bit of concern into everyone's um, uh, spectrum, uh, particularly as it relates to, you know, the ability for people to go into various systems um, uh, wirelessly and uh, attach a phone, an iPad, some type of device um, that gets into a network, and in particular that might get into... Um, you know, a hospital's network and shut it down. Recently, there was a situation uh, out in California, as I think everyone is aware, or most people are aware, that had an attack on ransomware. And what it actually did was it brought down many of the hospital's operations to the point where they had to make a, uh, a decision. Do they try to do a, a restore to bring back all the information that had been encrypted because of the ransomware? Or do they just bite the bullet and get the encryption key, pay the ransom in Bitcoin, and try to get themselves up and operational much more quickly? They obviously chose the latter, and um, as a result, you know, they did have to, to pay the ransom and get themselves up to speed. But it did take down their systems, and that, that to me, um, concerns me because they didn't have access, probably, to key health information on, on patients. Hmm. Jim, do you have anything to add? Antoine? Well, I, I would say this, Jim, from the Board of Trades perspective, we're hearing troubling stories about the pervasiveness of which people are attacking different healthcare facilities, whether it's on the records, you're certainly familiar with Anthem as it relates to the insurance side of things. A lot of it is about records, 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 getting access to that data and then sitting on that. Whoever's doing it, whether it's Russia or China or elsewhere, they're sitting on these records to be able to use them to exploit individuals into the future. That's a concern, and it's certainly an attack on the facilities to do it. But the other is the disruption of service within medical facilities, whether or not you can get the prescriptions filled, you can get your radiology reports. Does it really disrupt it in relation to ransomware or some other nefarious um, circumstances? And then last but not least, and but not least is a key phrase here, there's a lot of disruption being caused by people attacking um, either negligently or on purpose 
they're doing attacks within the medical facilities and elsewhere through a large part of the medical devices, the electronics that are in place, the USB ports. There are so many different, I'll call them ports of entry, to a lot of the systems that you don't even think about. And is it somebody visiting their aunt and starting to charge up their their iPhone on the heart monitor, as unrealistic as that sounds, it's a lot more common than people think. Or is it somebody trying to do harm to the, to the system uh, by getting into it through one of the different devices? It's all across the board and keeping an eye on it. I have to tell you, the, the different medical facilities, the hospitals around greater Washington and certainly around the country, and restaurants and bars and every place that has a cash register are rethinking access to some of these um, capabilities by even blocking up, actively blocking up their USB ports, but also doing extensive training of their staff. Yeah, Jim, to your, to your point, one of the things that is of recent concern is we call that critical infrastructure support, where people uh, inadvertently or on purpose, including um, terrorist attacks, are able to shut down um, devices, medical devices, as well as power to certain uh, buildings. And it is of significant concern in not only the hospital medical arena, but even infrastructure, uh, light rail, metro systems, because you're able to attack without destruction and shut things down. And, you know, in, in the medical field, you're talking potential life and death if you're able to shut down power, including the generator. So it is something that I know people are starting to pay attention to because of the open ports uh, that are on the power grids. You know, it. we had uh, kind of a related breach uh, in the medical arena in our region uh, two or three months ago, and I think all the facilities were shut down for two, maybe three days. But even things like appointments, doctor's appointments, people couldn't get, everything was gone. Uh, you think of cancer patients trying to come in for their chemotherapy treatment or radiation treatments. All of that had to stop. And this is where you get into a life or death situation, as you mentioned, Antoine. Uh, fortunately, it didn't go beyond two to three days, but just think about how much longer and what the impact uh, would have been on hundreds and hundreds of patients in, uh, in our area. Um, Antoine, I'd like to go back for a minute. Uh, we, I mentioned you at the beginning uh, that you were the CEO of a small technology firm in, um, in Washington and that you had to done a lot of federal contracting. And so our conversation kind of took off on that. But I'd like to go back to your federal, uh, your um, uh, fellow uh, small business uh, CEOs around the area. Some you may be providing some services for, I don't know. Uh, but what, how vulnerable are they and what, are, what advice would you give them if they're small business CEOs listening to us today? Uh, let's talk about what what do they need to do right away to start to shore up their infrastructure? Uh, that's a great question, and I think we are in a good position. We're one of only two small businesses in the country that's actually a DOD uh, mentor now, so we do mentor other small businesses. 
And so one of the things that we, we talk about is um, they a lot of the solutions are already available in terms of best practices. So the first thing we said is let's take a look at some of the best practices that are already published in terms of securing your network so that you don't have the wherewithal to do the research, but it's already out there. Many of the large businesses have white papers that are available, and uh, many of the federal agencies have already published the standards that they're, that they're looking at. Um, we tell them you need to take a little bit of the funding and invest in your infrastructure. Um, and in terms of the security, and monitor the behavior of targeted people. And what I mean by that is um, you want to look at your CFO and your COO and those people that are involved in financial transactions. I'll give you an example. We recently had someone uh, send my partner, Andre Rogers, an email saying uh, from me, somebody had, had, had said, hey, uh, Andre, I need you to transfer funding to this particular account for this reason. Um, we initially just jumped up and said, Wait, Andre called me. Why do you need funding? What is this? But they knew that by monitoring the behavior, most likely the CEO may ask for a transaction for the CFO. And so if it's uncommon behavior, people should look at it. And uh, they did the same thing with my COO. And, and so it was very interesting that small businesses that try to react so quickly have to think proactively, proactive about uh, behavior. And then the last thing that I would say is that they have to have to assess their infrastructure. Uh, as we talked about earlier, they probably, in some cases, have old old computers, old network, and if they don't assess their infrastructure for the most recent patches and any problems, most likely they're a serious vulnerability. Uh, and most CFOs and small businesses will still write their passwords down, and uh, they're on a file somewhere, and it's a Word document called password.doc, and it's not <laughs> encrypted. And, and, and literally, if you go to every business, somebody has that file. I'm going to look for it if I'm doing a cyber attack. When we do assessments, and we go in and do a little audit, I'll go to somebody and say, let me see your file, and I'll look for the file, and often you'll see some file with a list of all their passwords in it. Wow. Uh, yeah, even I do a little bit better than that, Antoine. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you'll see the post-it note that is on yeah. the um, court board. On the computer? <laughs> or on the computer. Keyboard. How many That's times, Antoine, has, have you seen that? Oh, yeah, under the keyboard on the post-it note. I'm like, really, guys? Um, <laughs> I mean, literally, if you look at them, all you need to know is a little, about, a little bit about the person. Um, most likely it's going to be around, you know, the wife or the kids and some birthdays and some things along those lines. And it's very easy to guess that if you know a little bit about that person. Right. Very interesting. So, Jim, you mentioned earlier, I think at the start of the show, that cyber attacks uh, have become big business. And in your opinion... You know, which of the following, I guess, would be the most dangerous for a company, whether it's lost business, lost assets, lost productivity, fines, litigation and regulation, and remediation cost? Are you able to prioritize any of those? Well, I think it's actually the amount of money that's being spent by companies to try and protect their crown jewels. Uh, I think earlier in the conversation we talked about how much does this cost, what defenses do you have. People need to really identify what their crown jewels are. It can't be protecting everything, so let's talk about the critical infrastructure, the critical mm -hmm. needs, the things that must be protected at almost all costs, and that becomes an equation that the CFOs are starting to grapple with. But then when you hear about how much money is being spent, and there's one company, I will rename nameless, but it's a financial industry, and they were attacked and they spent $250 million. They were attacked again, 
and they decided to spend another $250 million and hired 200 people and placed them up net near National Security Agency, the uh, NSA, yes. up in mm-hmm. Odenton, Maryland, at the National Business Park on the private sector side of things to make sure that they had the team of people that could help protect, at that point, a pretty good aspect of the national economy. So when I talk about it being a big business opportunity, I don't say that as a, a tongue-in-cheek kind of comment, and I'm not happy about it, but... This region has real gains of lots of companies that people have never heard of have started cropping up left and right around the greater Washington region because they know what they're doing on cybersecurity, and companies cannot spend money fast enough, and they cannot spend enough money to protect their own critical needs, their own crown jewels and critical infrastructure. And so we, and I I guess I'd characterize it by the general who runs Cyber Command saying there are in the past, three areas of defense, air, land, and sea, and now cyber. And if you put it in that kind of a term, you understand the size and scope of this. It is, uh, it is the issue of our time. It'll be with us forever. Everything is connected. And this cyber attack isn't just nation states of Russia and China. It's non-nation states, whether it's ISIS or Anonymous or others, that are coming at us from all angles, and, and malicious doesn't begin to describe it. It's incredibly dangerous. So the, the risks are hard to characterize because they're almost limitless. So this has become uh, not just a cottage industry anymore. It really has become big business in trying to protect uh, the crown jewels, if you will. I think that uh, absolutely, I think the biggest challenge, and, and my colleagues on the program today can, can uh, speak to it, I think the biggest challenge that organizations are facing in the cybersecurity space is that there's not enough talent to do all the work that needs to be done. So the fight for talent is real. We're very fortunate to have wonderful universities around greater Washington. We're happy to have the federal government here, and that spins off some talent but also sucks up some talent. And so NSA can't find enough programmers, and certainly on the computer science technicians and more that are needed, there's a real shortage. It's pronounced. We do a better job than most areas around the country of recruiting and retaining, uh, but sometimes they do get lost to the sexiness of Silicon Valley. They do get lost to the, you know, the, the Microsofts and the Googles and, and up at uh, Route 128 in Boston. <laughs> we need to do a better job of creating an ecosystem throughout greater Washington, more of the millennials would then want to, to live here, stay here, and that then goes right on down the line, right? You better have good public transportation. We better get metro right. We have to have a better cost of living here, and it's pretty expensive. So we have some challenges, but I would say that the big challenge in cybersecurity right now is finding the talent to do the work and help protect. Any comments from any of the, the, the other two? Yeah, Jim. One of the things, and Barbara, I don't know if you remember one of you know in your your previous life, one of the initiatives we were we talked to the community college about trying to get more of the community college folks in the district and some of the other universities to create even a two-year program such that we can increase the number of cyber professionals because you know right now it's very difficult. The shortage is incredible, and you have another issue where, at least on the federal side, I cannot hire non-U.S. citizens to do cybersecurity. And so in, in my software development side, I can get somebody who may not be a U.S. citizen to do that, but in cyber, because of the threat, uh, it increases the shortage. And so 
that is where you know, I believe this region is a great opportunity to partner with the universities and create the programs, and I think we should continue to focus there because without that, um, this region becomes very difficult. We know what to do. We don't have the natural resources to do it with. To do it. Interesting. Jeff, Jeffrey, any comment from you? I would say I, with what Antoine said, um, you know, creating that, that relationship with, you know, the universities and colleges and, and creating, you know, some type of programs between businesses and the um, colleges to create internship programs that will help excite people and say, you know, this is, this is really important to businesses, well-paying jobs. Um, I, I think it, it will get more people excited because, quite frankly, we, we all agree we don't have enough people um, to help in the cyber world right now. So this, this conversation must, uh, must continue, and we need to make sure that we are alerting people as to the danger, but also the opportunity that exists. Whenever there's a problem, uh, my perspective is there's an equal opportunity. Do any of you think that the threat of cyber attacks threatens um, innovation and creativity? Uh, is uh, in and is are you seeing any of that at all? Where people are less creative, less innovative, because they don't want to open the borders. This is Jim. I think that uh, I'm not sure it's it's stifling creativity and innovation in that respect. I think it may be more that innovators are having their intellectual property put at risk, if not outright stolen. And there's huge concerns about that. But, you know, when it's, when it's the secret recipes for some of the most iconic brands in the United States or it's the intellectual property of some young entrepreneur that's just starting out, everything's at risk. And that's, that is a challenge. It's an expensive challenge. I don't have the specific numbers of what's been lost but it's certainly in the billions and billions of dollars. And, uh, and we're losing them to other countries, and we're losing them to other individuals. And so I, I would say that it may not stifle the creativity and innovation, but it is raising the costs of doing business substantially. And it's probably, um, probably keeping a lot of innovations from happening that we're never going to hear about because it gets caught up in, in who owns the intellectual property. And that's a great, great comment. Yeah, yeah. One, one, of, one of the things that we're seeing is um, we're working with one of the small businesses that's doing work at NSA, and they're looking for innovation. However, it's NSA, and so one of the things they, they allowed us to do is build out a lab to practice cybersecurity innovation without impacting the network. And so we're starting to see the increase in the laboratory concepts where you can be innovative but not, not in the quote-unquote real world, in the matrix, as they say. Hmm. Very interesting. So, you know, as we look at all the things that the three of you uh, have talked about uh, today, uh, and we've, we've talked about some um, uh, possible solutions, uh, some possible steps that businesses need to take, is there a silver bullet and is this a problem give me some optimism guys uh is is this a problem that can be solved and i'd like all three of you to kind of respond to that wow this is jim Uh, (laughs) i I guess my short answer is no i think that this will be a never-ending battle 
this is not the war on drugs, but you can see in some analogy on the war on drugs, if you'd ever classify it as being successful. I think this is every single time a door gets closed, another three open. And you're constantly doing battle, constantly doing battle. So I'll go back a little bit of silver lining and say this is an industry that will continue to grow through our lifetimes and probably in the next generation. And, uh, and I think that it's an enormous opportunity for the greater Washington region to be of real service to the national economy, the national infrastructure, uh, frankly, the national security through the work that we do here, and by extension, real help to the companies that are battling this scourge. Jeffrey and Antoine, any thoughts? I, I would agree. Uh, there is no so silver bullet that is going to magically take care of this problem. Um, people need to be diligent about their practices. They need to implement good policies. Uh, the training uh, for their employees needs to be there. They need to invest in infrastructure, and they need to update what they have on a regular basis, and that will help mitigate the risk, but certainly not eliminate it. Um, I, I think it also, as I think Jim had mentioned, it, it brings to bear the, the thought that this is, you know, not a fly-by-night industry. The, the cybersecurity and everything around it is going to continue to grow probably exponentially, and we have some real opportunities here for people to get involved in, in something um, that will be, you know, much bigger tomorrow than it is today. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that's interesting is what drives it is the thirst for information at our hands and wherever, wherever we want it drives the cyber. And so at the end of the day, as we want more access to information real time, the bad folks want access to that information uh, faster than we do. And so because of that, um, I think that's why it's a never-ending war. The silver lining is that I think awareness uh, is becoming now pervasive throughout our society where People are now thinking about it when they go to the coffee shops and say, wait a minute, I shouldn't pay my bills here. Let me just surf. And so I think as long as awareness increases, um, that, that gives us a fighting chance to keep the war on the right, right, right grounds. At least gives, gives us an upper, uh, an upper hand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have to leave it there. Um, there are some key takeaways uh, for me today. One is resilient businesses can help create stability in geopolitically challenging markets. Two, a sound investment in a changing market moves us forward. And three, the public sector can learn from the private sector and how they effectively manage risk. Thank you, our listening audience, for joining us today. Cybersecurity, securing your business in an insecure world, an extremely important topic to business. And we were pleased to share the airways today with Jim Denniger, the President and CEO of the Greater Washington Board of Trade, Antoine Ford, President and CEO Enlightened Incorporated, and Jeffrey Ziplo, partner at Bloom Shapiro. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with me today. And to all, remember that people are divided into three groups. Some people make things happen, some people watch things happen, and others wonder what happened. Which group are you? You have been listening to Insights and Strategies. I am pleased to be your host, Barbara Lang, Managing Principal and CEO at Lang Strategies here in the nation's capital. We hope you will join us next week 
where we will discuss the cost of Obamacare on business. Should be another great discussion. Thank you. Good day. Thank you for tuning in this week to Insights and Strategies. Remember to join your host, Barbara Lang, each Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management